My name's Nick. If I haven't met you, um, I am the uh, lead pastor here. Happy to be one of the elders. Happy to get to bring God's word um, to you. If you need a Bible, you don't have one, you can raise a beer, your hand, and uh, some lovely gentlemen somewhere in this room will get you one. Um, anybody else? You can uh, keep it, give it away, or uh, just give it back to us at the end of the service, whatever, whatever you need. We'll be in um, Luke's Gospel, and chapter 4, we're going to read uh, just a few verses, verses 38 to 41. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the New Testament, chapter 4, uh, verses 38 to 41. Now, while you're um, trying to find that, I will let you know, last week I kind of, you know, um, tried to get it, put the feelers out there for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, what to do. Christmas Day falls on a Sunday this year. Um, so just trying to figure out what would serve you guys best. Um, and it does seem like Christmas Eve is what we're going to aim for. So just putting that out there for you. Um, and then now the question really is time for that. So I'm, I'm going on either side of it. If you have opinions, let me know. I, I could either see us doing 7 o'clock. Or I could see us doing five o'clock. Uh, one would be after dinner, one would be before. The main factor is just kids. Um, and I realize a lot of people will be out of town. Uh, but maybe we'd be able to grab some people in from the neighborhoods, who knows. Um, do a, sh- a short service. Um, that would be a miracle in and of itself for me, right? Um, and uh, a little Christmas miracle come early for you. Uh, but yeah, so just a short service. We'd, we'd have the, the hopefully um, try to reach the neighbors, things like that. Did you? Were you saying hi? Oh, okay. I saw this. All right. Uh, five o'clock. You like that? I, I'm leaning there. You guys leaning there? Feel like that's good? Okay. I'm getting some parents saying five. Okay, good. That's what we'll do. Uh, I'm easy. So Luke chapter four, verse 38. Let's, uh, let's read this text and then um, let me pray. We'll get when we'll dive in. And he, Jesus, arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law, Simon's Peter, by the way, in case you're confused. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Let's pray, guys. God, we just, insofar as we're able, we open ourselves up to you right now, Lord. We put ourselves on, on the altar right now, God. And we just say, please, would you come and, and, and speak? Would you have your way with us?
God, you are the great physician. You're the one who knows what we need more than anything, even if it's the hard diagnosis. You're always healing, God. You're always moving to restore and renew. And, and Jesus, we're in need of that. We, we, uh, we mess up big time. We fall into serious traps. We go through seasons of, of deep darkness. Seasons where we don't know where you're at, what you're doing. So God, today we just lay ourselves at your feet. We, we just ask that, that everything else would be removed from us, God. That our idols and our props and our, 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 our false pretenses, all these things would be removed and we'd get clear vision of you. And hear clearly your voice. And that you'd begin to put us back together, Lord. We know that's why you came. You didn't come because this is the most desirable spot (laughs) to set up residence. You came because we're broken. And you want to fix us. You want to recreate. You want to remake. You want to heal. So here we are, Lord, great physician. We ask you to come. And for uh, your glory and our good, would you do this? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, the the headings for this message right up front, and we're going to dive right in. Therefore, those of you that are, are type A and like to know where we're going uh, ahead of time, uh, you'll, feel, you'll feel good about what's happening here. Um, first, I have for us a private residence. Private residence, that's verses 38 to 39. Then we're going to look at a personal touch, that's verse 40. And finally, a perplexing rebuke, that's verse 41. So, private residence, a personal touch, and a perplexing rebuke. Let's dive into the first, a private residence, verses 38 to 39. Now, when we look um, closely at this text... Uh, I think one of the first things that comes uh, right off the front of it is is the sense that Jesus has kind of intimate and personal concern for, for his people, for every one of us. That he's intimately and personally concerned for you and for me. Last week, we watched in verses 31 to 37 as, as Jesus is kind of doing this, this uh, miraculous stuff in the synagogue. He's using the authority and the power of his word to heal in the, the public place of the synagogue. Well, now, what we might think is that kind of for Jesus, he's gonna, that's kind of where he's gonna set up camp, that's where he's gonna post out and do his ministries in the public spaces. And people, whoever might come to him, he will, he will use his authority to heal. But what we actually find now in our text is that he's gonna leave the synagogue. He walks out from the public place and he starts going into the private residence of people. In particular, uh, the home of Simon, where his mother-in-law, so Peter, where Peter's mother-in-law lay sick. And we read that there in verse 38, the first part. He arose, Jesus, and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, man, he cares. He has intimate and personal concern for, for us, such that he's not just out here somewhere, come to him if you, if you, if you're able, 
But he's coming after us and he's, he's, he's doing things on our turf. He's coming into the details of our lives. And, um, you know, seeing as this is, and we are now making the turn towards the Christmas season, it seems like an appropriate note to strike at the front of this sermon because that really is what Christmas is all about, is it not? That uh, the Word, who was God, who dwelt with God, took on flesh and now dwells among us. He's come into our residence. He's come into this trailer camp, or trailer, yeah, that we call uh, planet Earth. And he's, he, he's come down, and he's moving out in pursuit to heal you and I. Now, as the story unfolds, uh, we find out just why Jesus has entered uh, Simon's house. And you see that there, the second part of verse 38. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. So she's sick, perhaps deathly sick. It's not looking good. And then we are given this little detail. And uh, I'm going to linger on this for just a moment with you. It says this, and they... You might wonder who they is. Mark tells us it's Simon, Andrew, James, and John. So, and they appealed to him, Jesus, on her, the mother-in-law's behalf. And they appealed to him on her behalf. You might recall last week, and I'm going to drive this in a little bit deeper, but last week with the demoniac, I mentioned something that about... Um, the individual's faith and how it relates to healing. And I see it again here, and I just wanted to bring it out for us. Um, sometimes we have this sense that unless the individual can kind of muster up this faith, that person's not going to see the healing that they need. Right? Like, unless you believe in Jesus enough, you're not going to get healed. And so if you're not healed, it must be a problem with you and your faith. But what we see in these stories time and time again is that it's not just the faith of the individual that's at play here. It's actually sometimes the faith of those around the individual. That there are going to be times where uh, the community around the individual is going to have the faith to call down the blessing that that individual doesn't have the faith to believe Jesus for. Simon's mother-in-law is laying sick, perhaps near death. She's not looking at Jesus going, I believe you're the Messiah. She probably got her eyes closed and about to die. And so it's amazing that what we see here instead is a community around her that calls the blessing down, that they are appealing to Jesus on her behalf. It's the same kind of thing that we're going to see down in verse 40 of this text where we read this. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. You hear that? I've got sick in my family. I've got people that are struggling, you know, among my friends or whatever it is. And I am taking it upon myself to bring them to him because they can't bring themselves. Catching that? So the implication really is that the Christian life uh, is not meant to be lived out alone. We might fall on either side of the spectrum, whether we're the, the people that are doubting or the people that are believing. But, but either way, the Christian life is not meant to be lived out alone. It's meant to be lived out together. 
And so think with me on this. Some of us are in that place of feeling so sick, so doubtful, so despairing that we actually need others to bring us to Christ. And sometimes, right, if, if we're honest, we, we, we are too ashamed to admit that that's where we're at. That that's me. And maybe perhaps those are the people that didn't even make it to church this morning because they, they, they don't even have the faith to, to, to move like that. But maybe some of you are here and that's how you're feeling. Just despairing, doubting, feeling just sick and tired. And you might think that that's a check against you. That you're in that place. But actually, what I'm reading here is that that's what the church is for. The church is supposed to be a community that gathers around people like that. That we can come and we can say, I'm there. And then the church gathers and lifts up the drooping arms of those individuals. People in this church do that for me when I feel this way. Happened this last week when I met with Josh McGuire. It's awesome. Others of us, though, uh, maybe are feeling fine. In our faith, maybe a little too fine, meaning uh, maybe we, we kind of we kind of do our faith thing, our Christian life thing, but we do it alone. It's this personal it's this personal walk that we have and we're feeling great about it. But we've missed the fact we've missed the fact that it's meant to be lived together and that we are actually called by God to be a, a holy or a royal priesthood. Meaning, I exist now to intercede, to mediate God's presence to others, to, 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 to stand in the gap for those that are struggling. And so, maybe I'm not in the place of, of, I need to be carried, but if I'm not there, perhaps I'm over here, I should be here, carrying others, looking around. Who in my life can I plead to Jesus on their behalf? Or who in my life uh, needs to be carried to the Savior? So questions that we should ask. And I'll tell you, I often do make, uh, even my, even as a pastor, I, I can make it more about like when I pray and when I think it's about me and Jesus. And gosh, I know some of you guys are so much better at just interceding and entering into that place of, of and the calling of, of the royal priesthood. Uh, we're going we're gonna to bring others, we're going to plead on their behalf to Jesus. Now, um, as we look at, at verse 39, three things in particular kind of stood out, struck me about Christ's healing at this point. I'm going to bring them out for you here relatively quickly. Okay, I realize that we might have some little, you know, different reflections as we go kind of bit by bit through this text. So uh, forgive me if it doesn't seem uh, as a coherent whole. Hopefully by the end you'll, you'll feel like you're, you're with me. Um, but three things in particular struck me as I looked at this healing of Simon's mother-in-law. First, the immediacy of the healing. I wonder if you caught that little detail there. I love that Luke brings this out. Uh, Jesus doesn't. He doesn't say, okay, uh, you haven't seen this yet, but in the future they're going to develop something called aspirin. I want you to take a couple of those. The fever will drop. You get a good night's sleep. In the morning you feel better. That's not how this works. Instead, what we watch is, is Jesus rebukes the fever and it leaves her immediately. And that's what we see, is it not, uh, there in verse 39, he rebuked the fever and it left her immediately. 
And as I'm reading this and as I'm looking at miracles, you guys, I'm seeing in a way a foreshadow of the last day, right? When we are raised and are, are finally the, the, the perishable puts on the imperishable. And what do we read about that day but this kind of immediate transformation that's going to take place? Here with this woman is kind of this foreshadow of the last day when we will raise, right? What, is, what, what, what does it say about that day in 1 Corinthians 15, 52? In a moment... In, a tw- in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So this is the same word that's speaking over Simon's mother-in-law saying, listen, get out of here, fever, and rise up, woman. That same voice is going to cry out at the end of the age when finally we will be raised never to fall again. We're watching that sort of stuff happen. This is the one who's come to put us back together and he can do it instantaneously. He has that kind of authority, that kind of power. Second thing that I wanted to bring out about this healing is, is the fullness of the healing. The fullness of it. Now here's what I mean by fullness. I mean that the healing doesn't just stop at Simon's mother's in law uh, body. It doesn't stop at our body. The healing doesn't stop at, at re, you know, reducing the fever, getting rid of the fever. It actually makes its way through the body to the soul and the heart of this woman. So that what we read, her response, I think is what's giving me this. What we read is, is if you look, after the fever left her immediately, she rose and began to serve them. Meaning... Uh, Jesus had touched her heart. In touching her body, in healing the fever, she rose up now with a desire to serve him and others. Because here's the fact of the matter. Um, it is not a full healing if a person's body is fixed, but they run off never to deal with Jesus again. How many of us have perhaps been in that place, known people in that place, you're just in the throes of it, right? You're just down on your face. You're in the throes of it. And in that moment, you're open to Jesus because you're in desperate need physically. So you cry out, Jesus, help me. He helps you and you never talk to him again. You just run right out. Thank you. We're out. That's not a full healing. What that actually is is a tragedy, you guys. And you see that happening. You are witnessing a tragedy. They've missed it. They've missed the point. Jesus reaches through the body to get the heart. And that's what we see with Simon's mother-in-law. Where, and this is, I mean, this is our story, is it not? That, that Jesus reaches uh, through the pain and the, and the suffering that we deal with, gets our heart, and then we start to find this joy now in serving Him, that we're, we're amazed that He would do this for us, that He would come into the muck, that He would take our sickness, so that we kind of, when we are, you know, risen up out of that place, we are overjoyed. And so grateful to get to serve Him and others. It just starts coming out of us. There's something in our heart that's been healed by the Savior's Word. Now, there is um, a third thing that I want to bring out, and it's related to this second point. And that is the, um, 
the order of the healing here. The order of it. I wonder if you noticed how this whole thing goes down with Simon's mother-in-law. It's first sickness. Verse 38. Then salvation. Verse 39a. Then service. Verse 39b. Did you hear that? I don't think it gets more gospel than this. It's first sickness. I got nothing. I'm laying dead. It's then salvation. It's finally surface. The order is critical, and we are going to see this time and time again. That um, Jesus... His salvation comes to the least and the lowest, to the have-nots and the can-nots, to those people that are too sick to serve Him. Here's what often happens in our, in our kind of religious, our, our legalistic kind of sense. We feel a lot of times like we have to kind of earn God's favor. Like we, we flip the order around. We need to serve Him and then will come salvation. That we have to do our works, our religious peace, and then we'll have acceptance with the Father. But that is not what we see pictured here or the rest of the gospel at all, let alone the rest of redemptive biblical history. It is always God moving towards the sick, towards those people who are dead, towards those people who cannot do this. And He's the one who lifts them up, saves them, and sets them in the, in the joy of His service. He's the one who does this. And so I want us as a church to get the order right. Perhaps some of you do feel that way, like, man, I am a mess. I'm sick. I'm broken. I mean, that's, those are the people... Jesus comes to save. Those are the people that Jesus enlists on his team and puts in his service. We don't labor for God's love. We, we labor from it. That's what we watch with her. That's what we watch with her. Now, um, I think it will move us into the second heading. A personal touch, a personal touch. Verse 40. I I said at the opening of this sermon that um, Jesus has intimate and personal concern for each one of us, right? And that he uses the, um, his authority and his power to heal, that he's coming after us with it. But there's even more that I, I want to bring out here um, on this point. Because we might, you might, I mean, we know Jesus by and large, uh, but if you were just reading this for the first time, you still might uh, be able to interpret some of these events as, yes, Jesus wants to heal. Yes, Jesus is moving towards us, but he's still keeping a safe distance. How do I get that? Because he's using his word to do this. Okay, like if I had my word and there were sick people over here and and my word could heal, that feels better than actually having to come over there and get near the sick person. We could still feel like, hey, he's healing from across the room. 
He, 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 yes, he's concerned for us, but he's got these white robes on. And he doesn't want them to get scuffed up. He's holy. So he's going he's gonna to kind of rebuke the fever, rebuke the demon from across the room. We can still kind of read that into some of these scenes. But when we get to verse 40, there's no way to mistake it anymore. He's getting as close to us as he can. He's touching our skin. This is verse 40. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. There's this laying on of hands that takes place. That's a powerful scene. I know we're just used to that idea. I want you to think about the God of the universe, holy of holies, before whom the angels hide their face, coming and and, and laying his hands on us. Laying his hands on you. No longer can we think God's just kind of speaking from heaven or God is just kind of speaking from a distance. God is coming as close to the mess as he can. The laying on of hands, uh, in a sense, is, is kind of this, it's expressing solidarity. The solidarity that Jesus has with these suffering people, these sick and suffering People. We get a sense of his deep and abiding compassion. And you might, might know where we get that word compassion. It, 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 it comes, I guess, from the Latin that means with suffering or to suffer with. <laughs> and so what we're seeing is Jesus' compassion here. He is putting his hands on these people saying, I'm with you in this. I want to bear this with you. I want to bear this for you. What we are not to read, and maybe maybe some of us do, uh, in this laying on of hands is some sort of like Harry Potter moment, where like lightning bolts are coming out of his fingers and, and these people are being zapped and they're being healed like that. I don't think that's what we're supposed to read into this laying on of hands. Like some of the things you might see on like the tele- televangelists or whatever, you know, that sort of a thing. I think we're supposed to see a father's hands, a, 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 a bridegroom's hands saying, I am with you in this. The kind of embrace that you might see between loved ones at a hospital. When they don't know if, if, if they're going to make it out alive. Like, I'm with you in this. That's the kind of, of, of touch that the Savior uh, comes to us with and these sick people with. Now, the healing is um, certainly an exchange, right, from the Savior to the sick person, the sick individual. Uh, we know for sure, obviously, that his power is going out and healing, washing, cleaning, uh, uh, putting back together this broken person. But there is an exchange in the opposite direction as well. And it might not be as evident to us at first, but it's evident once we watch where he's going to the cross, is it not? 
That the, the, the exchange isn't just this one-way thing like Jesus is walking around, kapow, kapow, kapow. I got all this power and I'm just giving it away and, and it's just overflowing onto you. There is an exchange in the opposite direction. Namely, there is sickness and uncleanness and sin and all of that junk that's being gathered and placed upon him. He's not just causing the sickness to disappear into thin air like a magician. He's actually taking the sickness upon himself like a substitute or a sacrifice. Not a magician. Poof. Great. It's gone. But a substitute and a sacrifice. Give me that. I'll take care of it from here. This is why, you guys, when uh, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, a lot of the stories overlap, overlap between the gospel writers, right? But when Matthew tells this story in his gospel, this is why as he comes out to the end of the narrative, right where we're at, he actually leads us, he quotes from Isaiah 53, Verse 4, and he, and, he, and he draws the line between what the Savior is doing here in healing these people and what the suffering servant has come to do. This is what he says in Matthew eight seventeen. This was to fulfill all this healing of sick people, laying on of hands of sick people. Sick people, excuse me. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Namely, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So these illnesses are not just going out there somewhere. They are going on to our Savior. He is carrying them. He is taking it on and he is marching towards the cross where he will pay for the curse and pay for our sin. Jesus will do more in the end than lay his hands on sick men. He will let sick men lay their hands on him. Tie him up and kill him. All so that by his wounds, right, we may be healed. That's where this is going. That's what this sort of thing is anticipating. This is not just a miracle worker magician. This is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Our substitute and our sacrifice. So let me ask you... um, and myself for that matter, how do we approach a person who is noticeably sick? Think of me on this for a moment. I'm half kidding, but half serious. How do we approach people that are sick, noticeably sick? And I'm not even talking about perhaps the serious illnesses that Jesus is dealing with here. I'm talking about uh, just your average run-of-the-mill little head cold. And we see all the signs in that individual as they're kind of coming up to us, right? They've got kind of the, the sniffles, they got the red nose, they got that deep kind of like they got something in their throat kind of voice. They got maybe perhaps a handkerchief or a tissue hanging out of their pocket. You know that this person, uh, you know, keep your distance, right? <laughs> but you're looking and you see, and then all of a sudden they want to introduce themselves to you. And out comes the hand, okay? 
And you're thinking to yourself, you know, sirens are going off in your head at this point. At least mine, seriously. You know, sirens are going off. This is the crisis moment. Okay, I see boogers. I see, I see watery eyes. I, I don't want anything to do with this. Well, hi, my name's Nick. How are you doing? You're looking at the hand, right? You're wondering, what am I going to do? You have a number of options at this point. You know, okay, it's not acceptable just not to shake the hand. To get, you know, sometimes maybe, maybe you pull the, the fist bump, something like that. That works. It's not acceptable to not shake the hand. That would just be rude, right? But you're thinking, man, do I really want to go for the full embrace? Because here, here's what we're certain of in these moments, usually, right? We're thinking, okay, I know that if I shake that hand, not only am I going to get what they have, but it's probably going to settle in my lungs. I'll probably get some sort of pneumonia. I have to go to the hospital. It's going to ruin my holidays. Then it's going to spread to all my kids, and we're going to be sick for the next couple of months. So is, is loving this person, is reaching out and touching this person really worth the risk? So then you strike perhaps the, the middle ground, which says, uh, okay, here's what we're going to do. i got a plan. <laughs> I'm going to shake but I'm going to make my way to the nearest bathroom. I'm going to wash this hand. We're going to get those germs off before they have any chance to stage a rebellion against the rest of my body. And then we're going to be all right. I'm joking. I'm not saying don't be smart <laughs> about you know your health or whatever. But I am saying that in our text, Jesus is seeing these sick people people that would be pushed to the outskirts, people that would be outcasted because of what they're dealing with. And he's not afraid to lay his hands on them. Every last one of them. There's no sirens going off in his mind. There's no self-concern. This is why he's come. To take this sort of thing from them, to enter into this with them. And I don't, I mean, I'm sure... Most of us realize we are in that line with the sick. Saying, please, touch me. Please, take it from me. And so, what I am trying to say is, we ought to think twice as we kind of keep our distance from people, those that are, you know, perhaps annoying or difficult or, or, or sick or whatever. We ought to think twice about this because Jesus entered into our mess and He calls us to do the same. To move towards the people that we might want to keep at arm's length. And this might have significant implication for your Thanksgiving dinner. It might. You get your families together and it's not always pretty, right? Sometimes there are those relatives that you're just, okay, family, we're just going to get through this. Let's huddle together. We can put up with that relative for one day. But I'm telling you, this, this text is saying, no, no, no. Not just put up with, not just kind of keep at a distance and stay civil. I mean, he's saying, let's move towards, let's bless. What would happen if we laid our hands on that person and loved them like Christ has loved us? Even if their sickness comes to us or affects us negatively in some way. Now, with um, Luke's mention of every one of them being healed, I don't know if you saw that, but he laid his hands on every one of them, and they were all healed. With, um, with Luke's mention of every one of them being healed, uh, 
Are we not left to face the question that often haunts us in our suffering? When we watch Jesus healing everyone that comes to him like this, like just boom, boom, boom. All of them are being healed. When we watch that happen, is there not something that kind of rises up in us that goes, what about me? Why does it feel like he's leaving me in my pain? If he's healing all of them, why is he not healing me? I don't know how many of you deal. I mean, you could talk on a number of levels, whether it's just circumstances that are hard or literal physical sickness that's abided with you, like if the friend you never wanted, it's just in your life and you can't get rid of it and you've pleaded and pleaded and it's still there. Doesn't that kind of haunt you a little bit? And you're reading this, you're going, so where's the disconnect between the Jesus I see in the Bible and then what's happening in my life as I'm praying and nothing's changing? Is this just a fairy tale? Where is he? Doesn't that kind of haunt you a little bit, the dark night of your soul? It does me. And so I wanted to linger here with you. Um, and let me read you this. We're going we're gonna to flesh it out a little bit more. Uh, remember, you can always find my manuscripts online. Uh, if, if you, I thought about giving you this quote on the back or something of the handout, but um, I opted not to. You can find it online if you want. But listen, listen to me here. I'm going to read from a commentator on this point, uh, Michael Wilcock. This is what he has to say. The general question which arises from the whole account of his healing ministry Jesus' healing ministry is, of course, does he do, does he do the same today? Does he do the same today? My own view, he says, is this. And I agree with him, that's why I'm reading it to you. Luke presents throughout this whole section a Jesus who utters words of power, and in these particular instances, a Jesus who is the healer of men's ills. And Jesus is the same today, but his methods are his own and not the oversimplified ones his patients would sometimes prescribe for him. In other words, he is the same today. He does heal, but it's not quite so simple as we might wish it would be in terms of why and when he's going to do it. He goes on. I would therefore make a broad distinction between two methods of healing. Where his object is to be known, this is the first method, where his object is to be known as healer, he works immediately. Such cures are, as it were, for the shop window, the kind of success story which establishes the reputation of a great surgeon or physician. I see no reason why in some circumstances today Jesus may not choose to work in this way and for this purpose. So there are times where Jesus, desiring to make himself known as healer, just does the miracle right there. And it's kind of this sign that you put out in the shop window and people see it and go, wow, Jesus is the real deal. That happens. That's one method of healing. But there's a second. And this gets to our question. But where he is already known, where Jesus is already known, he may well say to his trusting patient, I could, of course, give you immediate relief. But I would rather take the opportunity to do something more far-reaching, which will be to your greater benefit in the long run. 
You will find it more protracted and perhaps more painful, and you may not understand what I am doing, because I may be treating disorders of which you yourself are unaware. He will then set to work to deal with the needs of the whole person rather than with the obvious need only. He may aim at a calming of spirit or a strengthening of courage or a clarifying of vision as more important objectives than what we would call healing. Indeed, the latter healing of my body, may not be experienced at all in this life, but only at the final saving and raising of the sick when their mortal nature puts on immortality, like we read in 1 Corinthians 15. It might be that the the healing that you long for in the body might not come until that day, but he is certainly healing throughout it all, going perhaps deeper than we're aware. He says this, Our faith is, not faith that Jesus will heal in some particular way, namely the way we should advise him to do it. But we have faith in Jesus, the healer, who will choose his own timing and method. So our faith goes beyond just faith that he's going to touch my body and heal it, but faith that he is the healer, even when he doesn't touch my body, he's doing something else to heal. Let me... Reflect on this with you for a moment because I think it's important, especially as we read these things in the scriptures, that we start to get a framework for interpreting it and how how it relates to our life. I wonder if you heard what uh, Wilcock was saying. When Jesus is first making himself known to a person or, or perhaps even to a place like Capernaum, for example, he might often choose to do the miracle. Miracles are these kind of signs, these revelatory signs that help people discover who he is and what he has come to do. They're like these neon lights that kind of direct people to him and start to communicate about him so people can see what he's doing. This is why when he first comes into places, this is what we see in the Bible. So as he's casting out a demon or rebuking a fever, what we see is his authority and his power, his care and compassion. And we see that this, is, this might be the one whom God has sent to put the world and us back together. It's kind of revelatory shop window moment. Look at who God is. Let's enter in and trust this man. It's more than meets the eye here. And this is why I think, uh, or I should say, he gives the miracle to initiate and awaken faith. Okay? To initiate and awaken faith. But this is why miracles often cluster significantly on the front lines of things. Um, whether in the scriptures or in history, for that matter. I think this is important to notice. Um, as Christ is pressing into places where he has been previously unknown, typically you're going to see more of the miraculous, more of these revelatory signs, because these are people that he wants them to discover who he is. And they're, they're, he wants to initiate and awaken faith. And so what we see here in Luke's gospel is him moving into Israel really for the first time. And he's going to move in and he's, and he's, he's showing them, hey, I'm the one who's going to put back together the world. As he's healing, that's what he's picturing. And this is what we see in the book of Acts as, as Jesus is pressing out now from Judaism into uh, the Gentile world. And so there's going to be more of the miraculous signs. 
pointing to who he is. This is what we see on the front lines of the mission field as unreached peoples are being reached for the first time. And this is what you might see also in the lives of unbelievers around us and in our own lives, right? As we were brought to Christ, God was doing certain things or orchestrating circumstances or speaking to us in a way that just made us go, wow, he is the real deal. He is helping us see. He's awakening and initiating faith in us by these things. I wonder if that was your experience. It certainly was mine. Not necessarily with, with, well actually yeah, I suppose there were significant miracles, uh, that I saw and things that he was doing. But, but there are times and, and, and when we're initially being brought to Christ where you kind of have this honeymoon, honeymoon phase with him. Where you almost feel like you can kind of watch things working for good all around you. Like, no way. Jesus is for real, and he's convincing you of his character in these moments. Because you're just coming to know him, and he's showing you, I'm the one who's going to put this together. Look to me. And those are great times, right? But, and unfortunately there's a but, (laughs) as a person moves deeper into relationship with Christ, It actually gets harder, does it not? Have you found this to be true? There are times where we don't see what he's doing. Times where we don't feel his presence like we did at first. And like when that happened to me at first, it freaked me out. I thought I'd fallen away. I'm like, wait a minute, where are you? It was so tangible. Where are you now? There are times where he doesn't give us the miracle we're we're, we're desperately asking him for. There are times where Jesus withholds the miracle to do the more important work. If he gives the miracle to initiate and awaken faith, you guys, then I think he withholds the miracle sometimes to deepen and refine the faith. The very same faith he awakened with the miracle, he withholds the miracle to deepen and refine it. He gives the miracle to convince us that he is the one who's come to, to, to usher in the new world and the new humanity. He is the one. Don't look anywhere else. He is the one. But then he withholds the miracle to remind us that we're not yet in the new world and we're not yet to expect the new bodies and we're still needing to walk not by sight but by faith and trust in his word that we are going to get to glory. He's going to get us there, but it's going to be through suffering. It's going to be through the cross. That because of our sin, it's going to be hard. And we shouldn't expect him to start building his kingdom here now in tangible terms that it's going to move through the cross. It's going to move through the hardship and then we will see it in full. And so he withholds the miracle to do that sort of deeper heart work with us. It's not just about the immediate felt needs and this body and this life that you have here. It's about what he's going to do there. And he gives us enough to say, you can trust me. I'm going to get you through it. Believe me, we're going there. But it's going to be through the valley of the shadow. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. 
If you're looking for a Bible to back this up, I have a lot, but here's one. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 pleading with Jesus for the miracle. Please remove, we don't know what this is, but please remove the thorn in my flesh, he's saying. Please remove, he calls this, this messenger of Satan that's tormenting him. Please, please do the miracle, Jesus. This hurts. I don't like it. This is Paul. He has seen plenty of Jesus' miracles. He knows who he's talking to. And Jesus comes to him in those those moments and he says, No. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Paul, I'm going to withhold the miracle right now to do the deeper work. Press into me. Trust me. My power is going to be evident even in the suffering, even in the shame. And you know, Paul, you've preached it better than probably anyone else. That day is coming. When after we've walked through the suffering, walked through the cross, glory will arrive. Now, I'm not implying here that we are to stop praying for the miracle. No way. <laughs> We, we most certainly are praying for the miracle. We're pleading with God for one another, for the sicknesses, for the things that we deal with. But when the last word of our prayer has been uttered into the Savior's ear, what I am saying is that we trust Him to do what's best with it. We don't chase the miracle. There are, there are a lot of ministries chasing the miracle. We don't chase the miracle, you guys. We trust the person, the physician. Again, we pray, we plead, but we trust. He is always healing, and only sometimes does that mean he gives the immediate miraculous healing we're asking for. Make sense? Let me bring things to a close by looking at that final Heading, a perplexing rebuke. Verse 41. I'm going to go quick through this, but I I want you to see it. As we look at verse 41, um, at first glance, it it might not seem all that surprising to us that Jesus is telling a demon essentially to shut up. (laughs) I mean, if I saw a demon, demons are nasty. The last thing you want is for them to be speaking. So it makes a lot of sense. He's saying, silence. But when you actually look at what the demon is saying and why the demon is the demons, I should say plural, are saying it, it does get a little bit more perplexing. Why does Jesus rebuke them? Because look at what they're saying. Demons, this is verse 41, were coming out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. <laughs> but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Why? Because they knew that he was the Christ. Those are good things to proclaim and good things to know and why is he telling them to stop saying that i mean if you uh look closely at luke's gospel one of jesus's great missions in chapters four through nine is actually to kind of help people discover his identity who he is and what he's come to do and to then help them kind of confess that 
And so if the confession is here up front uh, in verse 41, why in the world is he trying to silence them? Isn't he laboring to help people get to know him? Why stop them from saying it? Well, certainly it is not that Jesus is ashamed of his identity as the Christ. Not ashamed at all. What he is, is concerned that uh, the Jews misunderstand what that identity, what that title, Christ, means. For them, it was politically charged. For them, the Christ meant freedom from Roman oppression. It was a political leader. The Christ would be a political leader bringing political salvation. And so Jesus is very cautious with the term because he didn't come ultimately to free us from Rome. He came to free us from our sin. It's very similar to what we're dealing with with these miracle things. He doesn't give us all the miracles because he doesn't want us to think that our kingdom is now in full. And heaven's already here. Same reason why he doesn't want uh, it being proclaimed that he's the Christ. Because he doesn't want to be made king now. It's not time yet. He's going to go to the cross before he gets to the crown. This is why when, when Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Christ... In uh, Luke 9.20, this is the very first time a human being confesses this. You are the Christ of God. Jesus immediately uh, responds, kind of comes back against them and makes sure he knows what that means. Comes against the false interpretations. Jesus immediately predicts his death in verse 22. The Son of Man, he says to Peter, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. In other words, great confession, Peter. I am the Christ. But let me make sure you understand what the Christ has come to do. It's good for us to end there. The Christ, Jesus, he knows, he knows that there would be no Christ, if, 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 really, if there were no cross. That to free us from Rome or whatever our oppression, that the physical maladies or whatever the circumstances are that we want him to free us from immediately, to free us from those things, but to leave us under the, the power of Satan and under the wrath of God against our sin would be no salvation at all. Would be no salvation at all. So he said, Peter, listen, yes, I'm the Christ, but I've come. To go to the cross. That's where the Christ is going. That's where the liberation is going to be found. So back in our text, Luke 4, when he's silencing the demons, because they're saying this, he's silencing them because they're trying to get them to take a shortcut. Hey man, these people will make you king now if they hear you're the Christ. Let's set this throne up now. And he's saying, no way. You can, you can, you can be quiet. The Christ, I have come to die for their sins and rise again for their healing. I will stop at nothing short of that. We're going to get to the crown, but it's going to be through the cross. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love us enough not to give us immediately what we want (laughs) all the time. Thank you that you give us, Jesus, just enough to convince us that you are good, 
That you're with us, that you're for us, that you're powerful, that you're authoritative, that you're strong. But that you withhold also to keep us honest, to keep us trusting at the deepest level. That you're not ready to to usher in the kingdom yet because you're doing more deeper work. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that when you could have taken an easy road, you took the road to Calvary. Thank you that you took our sickness, that you took our death, that you took our sin, that you took our curse. Thank you that you rose again for our new life. Jesus, we owe it all to you, and now we we respond to you in worship and song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.